Hello everyone and welcome to another of the Shared Ireland podcast series. Uh, Because we are still under lockdown with the COVID-19 virus, um, due to these measures um, across the island of Ireland, once again we are conducting today's interview via phone call. So apologies in advance um, if the sound quality maybe just isn't what it should be. So today's guest is a trainee solicitor. He's National Policy Director for OGRA Fianna Fáil and Chair of Derry City and Straban OGRA Fianna Fáil. Shared Ireland are delighted to welcome along Mr Andrew McFadden. Welcome Andrew. Neil, thank you very much for having me on. Not a problem at all. Um, did you get a little bit jealous Andrew when you said that Shared Ireland did recently a podcast with Jude Perry from Ogra Finnegale. So um, did you want to ensure that <laughs> that you got your um, voice on our platform as well? <laughs> well, no, it's, um, I saw the podcast um, and listened to the podcast with Jude and, you know, um, it was very, very good. Um, and, you know, it's great to see all parties, um, you know, trying to expand in the north, um, be they Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil or whoever. So um, anything that encourages more participation in the democratic process, I, I'm very happy to see. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, it was, um, when I saw that, I thought, right, we're going to have to get our word on here too for definite. <laughs> Not to be outdone, yes, absolutely, I agree. And I also agree, um, any party that is looking to get their voice across on an all-island basis Personally speaking, I encourage and welcome that because that's what's that's what's badly needed moving forward. Absolutely, Andrew. Um, we always start off by asking our guests to explain a little bit about your early years, your background, where you grew up, and I guess ultimately what shaped your current political thinking. So, in your own words, Andrew. Okay, so um, I suppose uh, anybody um, who's seen any of my social media will know that uh, I was born and grew up in Derry and still live in Derry, albeit I you know, work in Belfast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say overall that my upbringing um, would certainly have been a very Irish background. I mean, it wouldn't have been something which was overly political. Um, I, I mean, I don't recall much talk of politics um, in my house growing up. Um, Andrew, can I just ask you what age you currently are? You're 27, okay, no problem. Just to, just to put it in context about about things. Um, and you're from, you're a Derry City man, you are? Yep, so I grew up in Derry City. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, you know, growing up, we, we would have been very much aware of our national identity. You know, we were involved with the GAA. We would have, even when it came to things like watching TV and listening to the radio, it would have been our tea we've been watching and listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just something that, we never really saw any change to that identity or anything different. And then, obviously, as we got older and more aware of politics, um, that's where our political interests started to, I suppose, stem from. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, I really would have been coming to a political age, about 16, 17. It would have been around the time of the economic crisis. So. As much as it was a terrible time throughout the country, you know, people were losing their jobs and homes, and it was a it was a, it was a time when political awareness, I feel, was getting extremely high. People were starting to really understand what happened in the political spectrum because all of a sudden it had become so 
so important to people in their everyday lives. So I think that's what sparked my early political interests. Um, would have been that time and coming of political age and that time. Yeah. So at that time, I wouldn't really have had an association or even an interest um, in membership of Fianna Fáil. It, um, it wasn't something which arguably would have been in my consciousness mm-hmm. growing up and going to school in Derry. Can, can I ask, without meaning to get too, I, I suppose, personal here, but what kind of tradition if you're comfortable telling our listeners, would your family have traditionally been voting? Well, I don't wish you saying that at all, Neil. Um, my family, I come from a Catholic background, um, but again, similarly to the political point, it wouldn't have been um, an overly religious family. We did go to Mass and, and that kind of thing, and we went to Catholic school, but you know, from that then into politics, you know, my family would have been FBLB voters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, parents would have had you know, some sort of involvement um, with the FDLP back in the day mm-hmm. um, when the FDLP was first coming about um, but no, there, there certainly would have been um, you know, a strong support for the FDLP in our house uh, albeit not in terms of actual political activism The reason why I wanted to kind of find that out Andrew is because did it come a surprise then to members of your family when you decided to when you did make the leap into a political party, why was it Fianna Fáil and not the SDLP then? Um, so, I think realistically, the members of my family, it was less a surprise and more a case of you know, asking, asking what my motivations were behind it. Because, yes. I suppose just to be clear about it too, Niall, I didn't immediately jump into... Um, I very much took my time in figuring out which political party was right for me and you know I think I was uh, I would have been about 24 when I first got involved with Fianna Fáil mm-hmm. and largely the reason for that would have been you know looking at why Fianna Fáil and not the SDLP or not Sinn Féin you know I, I did have some kind of um, associations with Sinn Féin when I would have been younger mm-hmm. and ultimately the reason for that was and this will answer the SDLP question too Ultimately, when I was coming to that political age of 17, 18, and I was looking around, I wasn't seeing anybody who was representing my views um, in the northern political spectrum. But but and just on that particular point, that you didn't see anybody representing your views on the northern perspective, well, Fianna Fáil don't have any real establishment in the north. So how how... I'm just curious, how did you see them then representing your views as a Northern Nationalist? Well, I suppose I had to look back at it then in terms of who had delivered for the North, um, but not just in the North, you know, delivered for the North on an all-Ireland perspective. Mm-hmm. And we look at some of the major infrastructural projects that have gone ahead um, in the North or planned for the North, and a lot of these things were planned for, financed when Fianna Fáil were in government. And you know, it doesn't necessarily always come back to the northern standpoint. I was looking very much at you know, who represented my views on an all-Ireland political basis. Certainly, you know, a pro-business attitude, but still looking after um, people in society who need looked after. That was certainly my view, and it was it, it was views that were being exposed by by um, 
been involved in that respect. So, um, both in terms of history and in terms of present, that you know, Fianna Fáil were certainly the party which were matching up to me the most. And uh, also at the time um, that I would have been joining Fianna Fáil, there was still quite a lot of talk about the partnership with the SDLP, and I'm sure we'll get to that later at some stage. Yes. But, um, a significant amount of talk about what that would look like and for you know, a significant amount of time it was looking like that would actually have taken the form of a much more um, a much more uh, you know extensive partnership than, than what currently exists and what I certainly hope will come about uh, in the not too distant future so I suppose that really answers the question as the Okay, just on that point, Andrew, and again, we, we, we will discuss different um, things as we go through here, but seeing that we're on this subject about the, the North and the South and, and what, I, I guess, kind of drew you to predominantly a Southern-based party, uh, in 2017, your party leader, Michael Martin, said that the party planned to publish a 12-point plan within a matter of months about how, how links between the North and South should be strengthened to help prepare for the possibility of reunification. And I guess I have a couple of a little quick sub-questions here. What happened to that plan as far as you're concerned? Uh, B, what would you like to see in this plan if it ever does come about again? And C, has... Fianna Fáil, any real interest in bringing about Irish reunification? A pretty long-winded question for you, so um, you, you can take your time and answer that. I, as you know, I probably will take the time now. Um, but I mean, certainly in terms of the, um, you know, what happened to that plan, I'm actually, that's something I can't give an answer to. You know, that's something which um, would rest terms of responsibility um, with the parliamentary party and with Michal Martin himself, but it is something that I would like to see come about and yeah, I think it's something that has to come about and there has to be that level of planning starting out, to be honest it should have started already in terms of what Irish unity is going to look like because as much as there has been quite a lot of discussion um, about you know, the prospect of reunification and economics associated with it. What we haven't seen is any substantive government planning, either from the northern government or the southern government, and that's something of real concern to me from the point of view of the prime example being Brexit. Mm -hmm. and there was no planning for that. There was no concept of what that would look like. Correct. We saw the, the, the very extensive, almost four years of um, negotiations that went on in respect of Brexit. So I certainly want to see a document like that being published. I, I certainly want to see research and investigations and consultation going on on a very extensive basis that um, would give us an idea of what the United Ireland would look like. I mean, in terms of what I would like to see in that, I think certainly what it has to start with is what are the benefits of the United Ireland? And I don't mean benefits simply for the people who would want it or the people in the north. I, I've consistently said that a united Ireland has to benefit not just somebody in Derry or Antrim or Tyrone, 
being out of Ireland has to be beneficial for people who are living in Kildare or Tipperary or Cork. And most especially now, it has to be beneficial for the people who are living in Ballybean or Nelson Drive or Tully Carnot or any unionist area mm -hmm. to be ensuring now that outreach work and proposals for inclusion are being made and that there's a genuine real effort to do that um, because it is, my, it's, you know, it, it is my firm belief that being out in Ireland is the best way forward for all the people who live on this island mm -hmm. and I really want to see that outreach and that inclusion and that engagement happening now at a very early stage because you know there has been a lot of talk about what a referendum to get a United Ireland would actually look like and you know, some people have said that a 50 plus 1 approach would mm -hmm. be the right way forward and you know, I, I'm not convinced that is the right way forward because the foundation of the Good Friday Agreement was about consent and it was about equality and about inclusion and I'm not convinced that 51% agreeing to a certain thing is inclusion in the uh, context of that thing. Andrew, just on that particular point, because this is a very contentious point, and I'm sure you understand why it is. Um, there has been different uh, political leaders and ex-political leaders and commentators making a, a bit of a deal about this, <clears throat> that the 50 plus 1% would not be suffice to win any potential future border poll. Um, put quite simply, if it has been good enough for every other referendum, including the most recent big one, namely being Brexit, surely then, the principles of democracy, it should be okay for a future border poll. Yes? certainly didn't agree with the margin of um, the margin of victory, so to speak, if you could call it victory. But, but, but Andrew, if you put a vote to the people and the people speak, and that's what is democracy is all about, it's regardless of the numbers. If the threshold is the majority of people, whether that's a slim majority or a big majority, it's still the majority of people. So we cannot go back and start rewriting you know, how, how democracy works, can we? Well, I mean, I understand the point, and I do understand where you're coming from on that, Niall, and where some of the other commentators have come from. But at the end of the day, what we have to think about is how this is effectively going to work, and that's ultimately why I'm stressing the point about engagement and consultation and what people would actually like to see. So if it comes down to a question of would people like it to be, you know, a 50 plus 1, percentage or whether there'd be some kind of constitutional amendment required, you know, in the South, for example, that would allow a higher um, threshold to be introduced for something that is so constitutionally significant as a United Ireland poll, then that's something that should get discussed now at an early stage. Having, having a detailed plan and preparation and hearing everybody's fears, aspirations and concerns is vital and, and thankfully you and Shared Ireland um, agree on that. But, but I guess, you know, while ultimately whenever a border poll does come about, everybody would want to win it um, regardless, by the way, if you're a pro-yes or pro-no voter, as long as the, it would be lovely to see them, you know, win it by a substantial margin. 
And again, I stress this is coming from both sides of the fence here. So it would be great to see 75% of people voting yes or no, because at least then that couldn't be disputed. But that's why now, as you rightfully say, Andrew, Shared Ireland Platform is all about engaging in these conversations, trying to kickstart the whole debate and conversation around what a new Ireland, a new shared Ireland would look like, so that when the time does arrive, that everybody can go to the ballot box confident in knowing what they are voting for. I'm assuming we both agree on that, yeah? Absolutely. And you know that that is why the, the consultation process has to start now, because I, I would say that I'm probably going to get asked this question at some stage too, but you know, when this eventually happens, and I have no doubt in my mind that it's a case of when, supposed to, if a border poll comes about, we need to be ensuring that we're having this ready and that we're ready to present our arguments to the people mm-hmm. as people who want to see the reunification of our country. Mm-hmm. And the only way that we do that is by starting preparations and the analysis and the exploration of the topic early. And I would certainly like to see that in any potential programme for government, whoever, um, whoever formed the government in the 26 counties. I think it's urgent that there has to be some dedicated task force applied to this topic on a, on a permanent basis. I, I, and I, I suppose, you know, to get off this subject of the 50 plus one and, and the merits of it, I suppose what I would be ultimately saying here quite clearly is this. If the consultation process starts now and we have got a future border poll in five years' time, seven years' time or whenever, at least if we do the preparation now and make everybody aware of of the benefits or negativities of it or whatever. At least then people will go and cast their vote on that day on both jurisdictions of this island, ask the same one question, two questions, three questions, whatever way it's going to be laid out. But ultimately, if the vote comes back 50 plus one with for a yes or a 50 plus one equally for a no, for Irish reunification. That is democracy in action, and we have to accept that. There can be no moving the goalposts here just because it may suit certain demographics' um, agenda. You know, I, I am saying that quite loud and quite clear here. You know, we cannot start um, moving things to suit particular narratives, you know. And while you and I personally may disagree on that, I guess, you know, that's what this conversation uh, is for, is to flesh out um, the possible benefits of what you're saying and also for listeners to hear the benefits of what we in Shared Ireland are saying. Absolutely. And, you know, at the end of the day, Niall, that's where the where the consultation process, when it happens, is going to lead us. Um, we're going to find out what people across the country, not just you and me, yeah. you know, what people throughout the 32 counties um, of all backgrounds and persuasions uh, want to see, and that is ultimately going to include what any potential referendum or border poll is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Andrew, um, I see um, today, by, by the way, just for the sake of, our, again, our listeners, this um, interview is being conducted on th- Thursday the 30th of April so um, I'm assuming we'll be putting this out on our Shared Ireland platforms which are Twitter, 
uh, Facebook and Instagram over the next two or three days. But I just noted today um, that um, I spied you responded to uh, Nelson McCausland on Twitter. Um, Nelson today wrote an article and um, he stated, and I'm going to quote here, and um, as we prepare to commemorate the 75th anniversary of VE Day, Fianna Fáil must admit its links to the Nazis. And Nelson went on to say, De Valera made, such, um, made much of Ireland's neutrality, uh, but sided with Germany at every opportunity. End of quote. How would you like to respond to that, Andrew? Well, I mean, particular um, column and that particular columnist um, is now ultimately it's an alarming headline to read when you wake up and you see the founder of our party um, being, being linked with Nazi Germany <laughs> it, to me it was kind of it, it, it was a real foundational question it was like well hang on where, where's this coming from and then all of a sudden when I saw who wrote it and especially who published it, again, I was a bit less um, alarmed and surprised, but it was something that um, <laughs> certainly had a, a, an interesting look into today, and um, you know, I've, I've had a look at a few of the, the, the assertions that were made in that article, but there's really two streams of discussion that come um, from that article for me now. The first one is you know, what's written and why it was written, and the second one is why it was published. Why, why was it written then, do you, do you believe? Well, I mean, whenever I look at some of the assertions that are made on it, it, it they're not really... First of all, it, it doesn't seem to be any form of journalism or you know, even, even a, you know, a, a proper column um, opinion in that sense. There's no source that was on in the article. There's no reference in at all. It all seems to be based on you know, very loose assertions by Nelson McCausland. I mean, the prime example, I think, has to be he talks about the condolences that were sent and you know the much discussed um, over history condolences that were sent by Eamon de Valera to um, to Germany on mm-hmm. the death of Adolf Hitler and you know at the end of the day it's it, certainly looking back on history now I think some people may not regard that as having been you know unnecessarily um, great move for optics or even the right move or you know everybody will have a different opinion on that mm-hmm. um, certainly to me it was an attempt to assert Ireland's military neutrality which is a policy for the last almost a century now has been um, one of uh, you know, immense I suppose, success um, for Ireland in that sense they haven't got involved in wars or operations that um, the rest of the, country, the rest of the world or um, NATO have got involved in um, but looking, bring it back just specifically to um, to that column. You know, there's a lot of other assertions that are made on the allegations about infringement of sovereignty. For example, when American soldiers arrived in Belfast, well, you know, it was only in 1998 that Article Two and Three of the, the Constitution were amended that, that would have allowed, uh, that, or, sorry, that, would, that removed the constitutional claim on the six counties. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that should be any surprise there that that was. Um, alleged to be an infringement of sovereignty because that was a belief that was held by um, 
Irish government. And, and by the way, Andrew, it should not be, and, and I want to make this clear, that the onus should not be on you here to um, defend um, the founder of your party's um, actions. So, you know, I understand that this has nothing got to do with you or the current um, your current leadership, so I accept that fully. But what do you think Nelson's motivation was in writing this, and why? You know, well, he said we're are approaching the seventy fifth anniversary, but ultimately, what was his motivation? Do you think? Honestly, I, I don't have an answer to that. Um, now, I, I really don't know what his motivation in writing this was. Um, at the end of the day, you know, Nelson is somebody of immensely questionable political motivation and you know, we only have to look back at as I mentioned in that tweet the dispute at Holy Cross um, a number of years ago now but one which stands out in my memory as being you know, one of the most horrific episodes of the last two decades and at the end of the day for me somebody who will refuse to condemn that kind of activity is somebody who loses political integrity and credibility in my eyes. And you're referring here to the Holy Cross um, school, primary school in Belfast, where children were verbally and physically abused on their uh, journey to and from school by members within loyalism slash even, dare I say, unionism. That's correct. And, you know, Nelson was at the scene on many occasions and refused to condemn um, those attacks. And we're talking you know, very horrific attacks, as, as we both know, and any, any of the listeners um, sure will probably remember too. There was a recent study I read, Andrew, sorry for um, interrupting here, that um, I forget, so I don't want to miss a quote here, but there was quite a significant number of pupils that when they moved into their teenage years actually um, committed suicide from that particular school. Telegraph and you know we know that the Belfast Telegraph has been 
declining in its readership, like other newspapers, for, for many years. And it has, it has lost that journalistic quality that it maybe once had. I mean, the Belfast Telegraph was an institution for decades. Um, it, it was the voice of Unionist Ulster, and it has now descended into a situation where it's putting this kind of um, unfact checked um, article out um, purely to try and get a bit of clickbait going. So, um, well, I suppose, like a lot of institutions, they can find themselves um, dwindling as the years go on. Absolutely, and you know, it's. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily the appropriate way to go in terms of increasing your readership and getting yourself back in the position of. Um, Strength. I don't know if you've ever watched the, the movie, The Post. I just watched it there at the weekend. But it's about the Washington Post newspaper and um, revealing the facts of um, what's going on with the Vietnam War. Funny, funny um, I imagine, like uh, most of our listeners, I, I believe I've actually watched everything on the Netflix <laughs> site. But um, I, I cast my eye over the post there, and it's on my to-watch list, so um, I will be over the next week or two, certainly. I'll try and say very little about it, Tim. <laughs> very good movie. Um, definitely would recommend watching it. But there's one particular line that stands out, and Meryl Streep's character, who is trying to take the newspaper public, uh-huh. make it bigger and she brings back the fact that you know it might be a small paper now but if you increase the quality of your editorialism you increase your journal- journalism you bring the right people on board that's what's going to bring the readers to you mm-hmm. and you know it, this would seem to fly in the face of that um, so that, that would be my, my thoughts on that particular um, article and I think based on what I've seen on Twitter today the majority of people seem to mm-hmm. certainly agree with that yeah. No problem. Andrew, uh, trying to bring this back to, um, I suppose, you and the party that you're a member of, could you give me your analysis on the last general election in the South? And I'll just leave the question like that. Yeah, it's, um, well, I mean, I suppose, first of all, purely from a party political view, you know, it was a disappointing election for us. Um, We went on date with significantly more TDs than what we um, then returned to the oil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was disappointed to see some really high-caliber um, parliamentarians, members of our party, lose their seat in particular. I was very disappointed to see Malcolm Burt um, lose his seat down in Wexford. Um, Malcolm, as you know, had just been elected um, a number of months before and in the Wexford by election and so it was particularly disappointing to see that caliber um, of candidate lose out. And and even for me, Andrew, it was really surprising to see both your leader and all our leaders and high prominent members of all parties not getting elected to the fourth and fifth count even. Yeah, I think really, to be honest now, I think the people really sent us a very clear message. Now, at the end of the day, we operate in a system of and you know, whether you can elect it on the first count or the 14th count, every seat means the same and every vote in the doyle means the same. But you know, setting that aside and looking at this on a national standpoint, I firmly believe that people sent um, their political leaders a message saying that you know, it's time for change. The old ways have to be adapted. We're a more globalised society now. We see what happens in other countries. In terms of swings and vote trends, and I think 
um, as members of political parties and for our political leaders to be taken on board and to listen to what the people are saying. Andrew, I guess you know the line of questioning that I'm going to come out with next then, based upon your answer there. And, 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 I, and I quote you here in, in your answer, is that you guess that the population sent a clear message. So on that basis, what are your thoughts and that of Ogre Fianna Fáil on going back into another coalition government with Fine Gael, if you are right in your assertion that the, the general public sent a clear message that they were fed up with what already was in place? Well, I think it's important at the outset now just to stress that this is not, you know, if this does happen, you know, this potential coalition um, with Fine Gael, it's not another um, government with Fine Gael. Yes, we've had a confidence and supply arrangement since 2016, and that was purely in the national interest as a result of what was happening with Brexit. But this would very much be something which has never happened before in the history of either party. Um, I'm sure that many of the listeners will have seen that Ogrefina Fall um, had a resigned mandate um, against coalition with Fine Gael. Um, it was a two-thirds majority of our national council voting. And that certainly is the opinion of anybody I speak to, I'm in, I'm in contact on pretty much a daily basis with members throughout the 32 counties and with a few exceptions, they are overwhelmingly saying this is not something we want to see, this is something which we didn't campaign for, we didn't go out and knock doors um, to put Leo Varadkar and Simon Harris back in the office, we campaigned that we wanted to bring about progressive politics and change and do I believe personally that putting Fine Gael back in the office delivers change? No, I certainly don't. And you know, that's that's the political view of mine too. So, um, t- so tell me this, I, just just Andrew, and I apologise for interrupting, but if you are adamant and your members that you be in contact with on a daily basis throughout the length and breadth of Ireland are saying to you and others that that is not what you want to put Fine Gael back into government. Well then why, and it begs the question, do you not try and form a government with another big party, and arguably the party that won the popular vote in the last election, namely being Sinn Féin? Why do you not talk to them? And in fact, why do you even refuse to enter any negotiations with them about the possible formation of a new government if you are that vehemently opposed to Fine Gael? comments and I've been vocal within the party that I believe it was very much a mistake on our part not to sit down with Sinn Féin and I think it was a mistake for two key reasons. The first key reason was coming back to the democracy point that we've spoken about a few times mm-hmm. um, on this podcast. The people gave Sinn Féin a resigned mandate. Now, I'm not entirely convinced that the mandate itself was all for Sinn Féin. I think it was more one about change and that's what I keep hearing when I speak to people throughout the country politically aligned or not they want to see change, they want to see us do things in a different way and a better way so regardless of who gets it Sinn Féin got that mandate 
So I think that that is the first main reason why we should have sat down with them because the people in their votes made a conscious choice and effectively asked us to sit down with them. You are acknowledging the electorate by having a conversation. Yes, I agree. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I'm not necessarily saying there that we have to enter government with them, but what we certainly do have to do is to sit down and speak to them and see if a programme for government is achievable. And, and by not having a basic conversation, and if you could put the point across that you are possibly even putting two fingers up at the elected. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'll go that far on it now, Niall. I'm sure you can understand that I probably would go that far. But, but if, you, if you campaign on the basis of not going into government with a particular party, then you can arguably turn around and say that not sitting with them is a democratic choice. Now, Whilst that was certainly said over the course of the election, I think the level of support that came out for Sinn Féin would then turn around and say to us, hang on, we, we maybe need to reevaluate this and, and see if we can reach some kind of achievement. And it's, you know, at the end of the day, we won't know that unless, um, unless Fianna Fáil do sit down with Sinn Féin and smaller parties as well, because as we know, um, the numbers wouldn't be there between Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin for government on our own, we would need the support of uh, others, be it Social Democrats, the Greens, Labour, whoever. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I suppose that's my first main point, just in relation to um, the, the, you know, the Sinn Féin issue is the, the democracy and ensuring that we respect democracy. The second main point then comes back more to the discussion being had about Sinn Féin's history, and this, this is something that's been cited an awful lot. Um, by people when they say we're not going in because of this. Now, let's look back to the not too distant past when the Good Friday Agreement came about. The parties who were instrumental, and I'm not trying to, to sort of to, to fluff our own reputation here in any way, but you know, let's be honest about this. There were three key parties that were behind that on the island of Ireland Fianna Fáil, the SDLP, and the Ulster Unionist Party. And then, of course, we had the others who fed in the N2 from being to the Women's Coalition, the British Labour Party. And effectively what that did is that created something really unique and really special in the north of Ireland. And it was, as we know, a power shared administration where all parties have the opportunity to be part of the executive. And what it effectively did, what we effectively said in creating that was Champagne are coming in to the democratic sphere. And I was impressed by what Mary Lou MacDonald said last Friday on the Late Late Show where she did sit down and she did say, you know, the, the, the objective of that peace process and that reconciliation process was to create democratic space, to bring people in from, you know, the political wilderness and to, to ensure that they turned away from violence and from terrorism. And by turning around and saying that parties in the six counties have to sit down as part of that power shared administration with Sinn Féin and accept Sinn Féin as a democratic party, whilst at the same stage then that in the 26 counties we aren't going to entertain Sinn Féin as legitimate. To me that is political hypocrisy. Andrew, just just a quick wee um, observation on, on something that you said there. Shared Ireland are not backed, funded, supported by any political party because we believe that is integral to having a truthful, honest and open conversation with all parties across this island and all members of civic society. However, just based on what you're only after saying, 
you know, Sinn Féin are not a terrorist organisation and never have been. They, they are a political party um, democratically representing people who vote for them. So this old adage of going back to possibly where a party came from, you know, you are aware that Fianna Fáil, where your party originated from, they originated from Sinn Féin. So, you know, I think it's a bit tired, this old argument coming from your leader and other leaders, by the way. So I'm not just singling out your current leader. But, you know, it does get a bit tiring at times. And it could be argued slightly hypocritical coming from every party's background. Because let's face it, we all have got a past, including Fianna Fáil. So, you know, is it not time to move forward? And, and I just go back to 2017, to um, your leader's 12-point plan, where again, for I'll just state what he said in it, um, how to further improve links between the North and South and how they should be strengthened. Coming from that standpoint, and, and, I, and I don't think anybody would disagree with us if they're being honest here, Michael Martin seems to speak at an extraordinary amount of time attacking the major nationalist party in Ireland, North and South. Do you think that's helpful to building better North-South relations? No, I don't. And, you know, let me just be clear here, Niall. You know, whenever I said about parties moving away from violence and moving away from terrorism, I was not calling Sinn Féin a terrorist organisation because Sinn Féin are not and were not a terrorist organisation. Mm -hmm. They were aligned with a terrorist organisation. But fundamentally, that's why I said moving away from terrorism and moving away from violence. But you know, let's be 100% clear on that too. I certainly don't think that parties in the national sphere should be attacking one another, should be fighting against one another. Yes, hold each other to account. Yes, differentiate each other on on the basis of policy. Yes, exactly. And of how we're going to get a united Ireland. But mm-hmm. I certainly would like to see cooperation between all parties in this island, regardless of whether they're unionist or nationalist. And I'm not too sure if you noticed a few weeks ago, at the time of um, COVID had just broken a few weeks, and there was a lot of concern about how universities would go about the issue of exams and yes. how students would be affected. And all the major youth movements across the island of Ireland, with the exception of the DUP, UUP and Alliance, but nonetheless they were invited. All the other youth movements from Ogre Kim Fein to Ogre and Fall to uh, the People for Profit, the SDLP, we all signed a collective statement calling for a no detriment policy. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I would like to see more of. I would like to see more increased cooperation um, across the across the island um, between political movements and you know at the end of the day it comes back to the point that we were talking about at the very beginning of this discussion when we look at how United Ireland is actually going to to, to take place it's going to require buy-in from everybody and you know that includes unionist parties mm-hmm. absolutely um, Andrew <clears throat> there are reports coming out that there's major concerns among Fianna Fáil members that their voice might not be heard on entering a government with Fine Gael. 
um, as an art fest may not be held in time due to obvious reasons, and that there's talking about a postal vote to to basically ballot members' opinion on this. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think that regardless of the outcome, I think that there has to be a ballot of all members, and I said that to Michal Martin last week. Um, you know, I sit on the Fianna Fáil Art Corlea, mm-hmm. five delegates from Ogre that sits on the, the Art Corlea itself, and you know, I give my assurances to members throughout the country that I will not vote for anything which bypasses their um, their say, mm-hmm. information talks. It's part of our, our party's core and our realha that members are given um, a say at a special art dash. Now, as you've correctly pointed out, there are going to be huge logistical issues in organising that, mm-hmm. and there has been talk of a postal vote, and I understand that there's some other systems which could potentially be employed, um, things like phone ballots and that kind of thing. I'm not mm-hmm. sure of the actual specifics, but I think regardless of what happens now, there has to be a ballot of members. Members have to have their say on this, and at the end of the day, you know, I have gone into extensive detail that I am against a coalition um, with Fine Gael, mm-hmm. and I feel we should have the Champion. But if it comes to a situation whereby a ballot of the members, again, that ballot is in favour of a coalition with Fine Gael, then I will attempt to be as constructive as I possibly can. And Andrew, if this ballot um, is taken and um, your members support the coalition with Fine Gael 50 plus 1%, um, just, I'm assuming you'll be happy to go along with that. Well, at the end of the day, you know, whenever it comes to something like that, as far as I understand, our party's crew and our party's real allow for that. I'm not too sure if there is a special majority required in those instances, but um, I think the special majority would only come in in situations where we'd be changing the rules of the party. So if that is the case, if the party endorse it, then I will as constructive as I possibly can and convenience with that government um, but nonetheless like any government um, regardless of who is a member I will and I know that Ogre will do our utmost to hold that government to account and ensure that um, it delivers for citizens across the country mm-hmm. and again just to put this little issue to bed so that we can move on could you see a possible merger with um, Fine Gael um, leading to a possible split within Fianna Fáil, given the significant opposition coming from some quarters within your party? No, is, is it that serious? Like That's really what I'm trying to ascertain here. Just, just to be clear, when you say a merger with Fianna Gael, do you mean a potential coalition? Or yeah, sorry, sorry, a, a new uh, formation of government, correct? Um, I think ultimately there would be perhaps some attrition of members. Um, whether or not it ends up being a significant split, I'm not convinced that that would actually be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been around now for <laughs> many, many decades since the formation of the state. And 1923, some, I believe. So we've, we've been through some significant um, turmoil in our history and you know, some major changes, not just in terms of Fianna Fáil, but um, in terms of the country, and I think ultimately, I'm reminded of the words of Bertie Ahern in 2003 at the, at the Fianna Fáil Ardesh, and he said that you know, 
at the end of the day, Fianna Fáil was marked by history. It was, it was built by hope. And that whilst we've come through difficult times, we've come through and we've brought Ireland through as well, stronger than ever before. And, you know, I think ultimately that whilst if there is a coalition with Fianna Gael, it will be difficult for the party. It'll be difficult for the members. It'll be difficult for me. Um, because I see us as fundamentally ideologically different. But at the end of the day, we'll come through and we'll bring the country through with us as best we possibly can. Okay, you, you see there, or you're only after saying that you see the two parties being totally different. Um, I and others would, or could maybe argue, given the similarities between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, both being right of centre parties, I suppose, is there really any difference in the two anymore, Andrew? And if so, what are they? Well, it's a question that I get asked pretty much on a, on a weekly basis at this stage. Um, I, I can see certainly why people would have that view and why it is sometimes hard to differentiate. But to me, it comes back to the grassroots and it comes back to why we're members of Fianna Fáil as opposed to members of Fianna Gael. Mm-hmm. We look back through our history and we look at the successes that Fianna Fáil has delivered. We've delivered for working people. We have delivered on infrastructure and Ultimately, I believe that that is what drives us as a party. We want to see fairness and we want to see social justice, equality brought about. I don't believe that that same desire is there in all instances within Fine Gael and we only have to look at their record government um, whenever it comes to that. So, yes, whilst leadership may change and whilst the parliamentary parties may fluctuate in terms of their membership and their composition, I certainly think that when you make the point that we're both right of centre, I think that our grassroots and our successes are actually um, slightly to the left of that. And I think that that's as a party where we ultimately have to get back to if we want to start delivering that kind of real and impactful change that voters um, so well and they keep out endorsed. Andrew, you mentioned there about you know the differences and that you believe that Fianna Fáil um, you know, want to have equality and fairness and, and etc. I'm sorry, I haven't quoted you accurately there. But, you know, by you being a junior partner in, in the last government, you know, you are obviously going to be associated with the, the massive increase in homelessness. Um, and I guess particularly in Dublin about, you know, the people on welfare um about you know poor infrastructure being your own region coming from the northwest of Ireland you know the people living in Donegal and you know feeling as if that they're totally um, being isolated and not their needs not being looked after at all and this is something we'll come on to later but you know you, you are being tarnished and people may say rightfully so because you helped prop up this government for the past number of years how would you respond to that?
that conference's play agreement was difficult for many members and it was difficult for our leadership. But ultimately, I think it made an impact in terms of the national interests. You are correct when you say that there will be some, I suppose, um, optical association of um, Fianna Fáil with things like homeless figures and with the state of the health service. But what I would also say is that that confidence and supply agreement allowed us to drive forward some really impactful um, changes whenever it came to things, even things like the campaign by our housing spokesperson, Dara O'Brien, to increase rent pressure zones around Dublin and to bring student accommodation in under rent pressure zones, um, something that I don't believe would have been achieved um, purely under Fine Gael. So whilst they accept that it was difficult, and whilst there will be some disadvantage in terms of people seeing our association with um, the previous government, I think that ultimately it was necessary in the national interests, but that is no justification for us continuing into a new government where we will be in government and where we, where we will um, be tarnished by poor decisions of um, other members of the government, be it Fanagheel um, or any other member of that government. And it is, um, I hear it's been muted that the rotation of the office of Taoiseach is something that's been proposed if this the new coalition did come about. That's true, and I'd be interested to see the framework for how that would actually operate. Um, I suppose when we look back at government formation throughout the history of the state, um, there has never been a situation like this where two parties are entering on an equal number of seats, or an almost equal number of seats rather. So it's always been, uh, you know, a senior partner and a junior partner, mm-hmm. to my knowledge anyway. So I don't think that there's, again, it comes back to what we've been saying about COVID, there's no precedent for this. And I don't think that there'd be any precedent for how that would actually operate. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that it has been said that it's on the table that for a third or even fourth potential smaller party to come under the government. Yeah, because it's going to take more than both uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to make up a working uh, government so it will have to obviously include a third party or a number of independents as you correctly say. Yeah and it's, it's been talked about that the office of Taoiseach could potentially be open for them too. Um, as I say you know I, ha- I haven't actually made up a judgment on that to be honest with you Niall I'm not sure how it would work and I'd be interested to see the framework for that but at the end of the day Anything that encourages you know, participation in the democratic process, I, I see as a as a good thing. Um, but the question is, is it going to be in the national interest and is it actually going to deliver for people? And if, if something is going to do that, then I will be um, generally in favour of it. But I would have to see how it's actually going to work before I give it any endorsement or rejection. Mm-hmm. Andrew, just before I put this next um, question to you, as I said before, it's by no means... And do I expect, nor do our listeners, for you to defend previous actions of your party or anybody for that matter. But it's been over 50 years since a Fianna Fáil Taoiseach said, and I quote, we will not stand idly by, end of quote. Do you think the party has lived up to that promise? Well, I think certainly it has in terms of they won't stand idly by. And, you know, what Jack Lynch said that, Let's not forget that we were living in a very different Ireland and under a very different um, rule from that which currently exists. We were living in the Orange State and the brutality that was being unleashed on the people of Derry and the 
the people of the Falls Road and other nationalist areas across the six counties at that stage was something which was entirely, I mean, it was unprecedented, unprecedented in terms of our, you know, in, in terms of you know, civilised Ireland. And what I mean by that is, you know, Ireland, uh, Ireland without any kind of civil conflict um, happening on it, because obviously when that happened, that was before the onset of the Troubles and it was after, long after Civil War and that kind of thing. So, and, and to our eyes now, what was happening on the streets was just simply something which you don't typically see in the Western world. Um, so, looking back now, pain that it was horrific. At that time, you know, Fianna Fáil did stand idly by. Sorry, say that again, the last bit. At that time, Fianna Fáil did not stand idly by. You know, the Irish government did not stand idly by. Yes, it wasn't the case of invasion and kicking out, uh, kicking out the British Army from, from Ireland. That certainly would not have been something that was realistic and I'm not too sure if you've ever seen um, the documentaries that have been done had Lynch invaded and they play out what would have actually happened. It, it would have been a total disaster. But at the end of the day, you know, there was involvement there. There was calls um, for the UN uh, to get involved, which were blocked um, by Britain. And there was also, you know, there was things like field hospitals and whatever that were set up. So, um, you know, there, there was um, efforts that were made there. In terms of since then, um, when we look back at the record of Fianna Fáil in relation to six counties, yes, we don't stand for election in the six counties. And that's, at the end of the day, it'll come as no surprise that that's a source of great um, political and personal disappointment. To me, I would like to see Fianna Fáil. Um, stand candidates under our own banner here in the six counties, um, whether that's done uh, by partnership with the SDLP or whether it's done on their own basis, I would like to see it. But what I would also like to see, um, and what has happened um, over the course of the last 50 years on several occasions, is greater involvement in the affairs of the North. You know, I've already talked about um, the Good Friday Agreement and Cena Falls involvement in the peace process. Um, from Charlie Hawhey to Albert Reynolds to Bertie Ayer. Um and also greater efforts in terms of funding to the north, in terms of infrastructural projects which will benefit both sides of the border, um, things like the narrow water bridge, the A5, the dairy, um, greater investment in, in transport links, like for example, you know, to bring it back to dairy again, the new railway station, um, investments like that which, which are for all our communities across the island. So, you know, in terms of the level of involvement, yes, of course, I would like to see much more involvement and I would like to see us becoming even more active in terms of our um, engagement with the North. Um, but there, it, it, to answer your question directly, no, I don't believe that Fianna Fáil have stood entirely idly by. Um, but, of course, I think that we can still be doing more and I'm determined to see us do more. So, to sum up your answer... Um, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth here, but you'll correct me if I am. In summarisation, you would say that um, Fianna Fáil Party has lived up to them promises by Jack Lynch. Um, I'm not entirely sure that I can answer that question as simply as that. Okay. Um, you know, I think that certainly, as I've said, there is more that we could have done and there is more that we should do and I'm determined to see there be more done on the part of Fianna Fáil with regards to the six counties but that being said when we look back at what we have done we have done a 
significant amount and we're determined to do even more. Yeah, no problem. Andrew, you mentioned there briefly as well, you introduced um, possible partnership with the SDLP and, and maybe that could be an avenue of how the party would stand for elections in, in the northern part of the island. Uh, some have said, Andrew, that Fianna Fáil have a southern leader in Michael Martin and you now have a northern leader in the SDLP's Carl Maestwood. Um, how would you respond to that? Have you seen any tangible benefits from this partnership to date, Andrew? I have. Um, Could you outline a few of them? I certainly could. I mean, it's been, it's been something for, um, in particular, border areas. areas. Um, MLAs and TDs um, cooperate very closely. I mean, I spoke to Daniel McCrossan not too long ago, and he said to me that he put more contact with Charlie McConlow and Donegal than he would with um, MLAs or a border constituency, so you know, providing that all Ireland dynamic is something that's hugely important, not just for, for border areas, but for the north overall. In terms of more tangible benefits um, than that, obviously we saw during the Westminster campaign, um, the, the levels of Fianna Fáil um, activists who were on the ground in Derry and Newry and, and elsewhere throughout the six counties canvassing for the likes of Michael Savage and Alan Eastwood, um, and we were delighted to be able to lend their support there and you know, contribute to some real positive democratic participation in, in the six counties. And simultaneously we saw that, um, or conversely rather, we saw that um, for the general election in the 26 counties with SDLP members um, on the ground campus. Um, in terms of more tangible benefits than that, I would certainly like to see for my end and my role as national policy director, I would like to see more um, substantive policy engagement. I would like to see joint policies being created in relation to things like um, you know, the economic impact of COVID-19, for example, in relation to obviously United Ireland, um, but also other things on an all-Ireland basis like transport cooperation, energy cooperation, um, things which affect all our lives. Tell me this, Andrew, just to clear this up, not that it's vitally important, but when this partnership, shall I say, 
first was muted back, was it maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago? Um, the date isn't really important. It was called a partnership, a merger, uh, whatever. What is the proper um, terminology to use for your cooperation with Phenofoil? Are you are they the big party and you're bolted on to them? Is it vice versa? What 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 is the proper term for the working relationship you have with them? Okay. And the aim of that, as I've just kind of um, highlighted my wish list there, would be you know, more substantive policy engagement. And I think the, the main aim when it first came about was more substantive policy engagement um, in respect of Brexit. Okay. Um, and I would like to now see that be taken even further. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned in your answer there, Andrew, um, that more cooperation possibly um, with the joined up thinking between the SDLP and Fianna Fáil, particularly in maybe border areas. Um, you yourself, Andrew, have been very vocal on social media about the ongoing neglect of third level education in Derry, something that has continued for years. Has partition failed the entire Northwest region, including Donegal and other close counties in that regard. Investment has obviously been minimal. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't think that there's any question over that, that partition has failed the Northwest, but I would even go further than that, and I would say that partition has failed the North in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there it comes back to my point about you know the economic benefits of Irish unity, I think that it's something that's going to benefit the whole country as opposed to um, just the north or just the northwest. But yeah. bringing it back to that original question that you asked, Niall, just about you know, specifically the third level education mm-hmm. that's ongoing in Derry, um, this is something that has been happening now for half a century, it's half, over half a century since the Lockwood Report um, recommended situating the second university of the north Coleraine, you know, at, at that stage, arguably still a, a tiny provincial town um, with relatively poor transport network, mm-hmm. especially at that time. And, you know, that was something at the time when we look back at the history of it that united nationalists and unionists in, in utter anger and in protest. And we always have that, you know, that really famous image of unionist mayor at the area at the time. And, can't remember his name now, but I think he was a member of the Unionist Party and walking up to Starmont with you know, that, that huge kind of crowd behind him in protest to get a proper standalone university mm-hmm. um, for the study of Derry. Since then, we've had you know, a number of developments at the university. Um, obviously, you know, it became part of Ulster University, um, or, or the University of Ulster as it was back then. Um, and that's something which has consistently failed to deliver mm-hmm. um, for the study of Derry. You know, look, I, I give full disclosure in this regard. I'm an Ulster University graduate myself. I did my law degree at Jordanstown. And it, it, it's something which is an immense source of disappointment for me that a greater law school and a greater range of um, um, courses and law courses um, wasn't available um, at the game. And that's something which I think is seen across the spectrum of courses that are offered. Of course,
provide a bit of context in relation to that. Um, it was 2003, I think, when the University of Ulster first promised uh, a medical a graduate entering medical school to be located at Gate. Mm-hmm. And back at that time, that was long before you know, the development of the Belfast campus of the University of Ulster, which you know, has been rescued now to the tune of I think, £126 million, but I could be wrong on that. Um, it's something which has been plagued by delays and cost overruns, and I think it's now sitting at about a decade um, uh, overdue. I mean, it, when we look at the lack of, um, I suppose, you know, real economic courage to say, right, we're going to make a seismic decision here, and we're going to deliver the level of courses and the number of students that are required to make you know, a success of a university in Derry. Mm-hmm. The obvious option there would have been, right, well, we're closing Jordanstown down, we want to move it, why are we not moving the majority of those courses to Derry? Mm-hmm. That would have saved a significant amount on land costs. Let's remember that the land was fairly cheap back at that stage. You know, yeah. We were just kind of emerging from the troubles. Development hadn't really started, particularly outside of Belfast. Yeah. And at that stage, too, a significant amount of land was coming up in Derry by quite close to the university from the relocation of Foyle College from the sunny side to the water side. So, real courageous seismic decision there would have been let the lover on our commitments to Derry, let's create a proper university and let's feed into the economic development of Derry City. You know, you correctly pointed out in your question there, Niall, that. Derry is a city which has suffered immensely, you know, just in terms of infrastructure, in terms of politics, in terms of economics, and our unemployment rate you know, is sky high, you know, for a city of our size. And yeah. we, just, we haven't seen that level of investment, which which arguably should have been coming years ago. So it, it's something really that I feel that partition has accentuated in a way, but ultimately decisions need to be taken by the Department of the Economy, by the Department of Health, and there is, you know, there is commitments on there in the new deal, or new decade, or new approach deal, that would see funding allocated. I think the figure for, the cost figure given for you know, a medical school at the university in Derry would be something along the lines of 60 million, mm-hmm. 45 million of that is allocated in um, the study deal, which was secured by... Um, secured in Westminster. So all that's required there is that commitment from the Department of the Economy and from the Department of Health to build this medical school. We've got something along the lines of realistically a couple of weeks now to ensure that it opens next year. And what I really want to see is that political courage and that step taken that would ensure that that happens in time for that. Look at the broader scale. I know I'm sure you've seen on social media myself. I don't believe the University of Ulster has delivered for Derry. Um, I think all we've seen is a consistent bleed of courses and student numbers away from the city. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the number that we should be sitting at would be about 10,000. At present, I think we're sitting at just under 4,000, okay. um, which simply isn't good enough. Andrew, just, just trying to link it back here to the reason why we're talking to you today and why you are speaking on behalf of um, OGRA Fina Foyle, is that come back to the, the cooperation with your sister party, uh, the SDLP, is that you are in a unique position, I guess, here, is that Fianna Foyle are uh, a political party 
in the 26 counties and the SDLP are obviously a political party in the six. So how can you, this cooperation help ensure that you do deliver on the subject that we're only after talking about and other items for both the people in, in Derry and also let's not forget about uh, the people in Donegal, Cavan, Monaghan and elsewhere that equally have seen their regions been basically um, treated like like they're not even part of this island? Well, I mean, what I would certainly like to see, and this is probably where I was going there, um, and, uh, in relation to the university point, I think it's time now that we take a new approach in relation to the university. And I think that that is something which can only come about by cross-border cooperation. And what I would certainly like to see would be something pretty unique, and that would be a cross-border approach in relation to the university, i.e. a cross-border university. And let's not forget that you've got, you know, you've correctly said that Donegal, Donegal is often referred to as the forgotten county mm-hmm. in that respect, but you have a thriving campus in Letterkenny in the form of LYIT, mm-hmm. not too far away, about, you know, let's say an hour 15 minutes from Letterkenny, uh, depending on how fast you drive, would be Sligo IT. Yeah. And what I would certainly like to see would be a conjoined approach between the McGee Campus in Derry, Sligo IT and LYIT. Mm-hmm. And they have, you know, their third level institutions, they have degree award powers. And I would like to see some approach taken in relation to that. And, and would, would the, the students in Donegal take the high-speed rail to this in order to access these facilities? <laughs> I mean, in terms of um, in terms of the actual um, the infrastructure, you know, of course, there's an infrastructural deficit there too, and that's something that has been a, a real area of cooperation between Fianna Fáil and the SDLP in pursuing the A5 mm-hmm. and getting that road built to the northwest. Because let's not forget that the A5 road between Derry and County Monaghan would be just as beneficial for County Donegal as it would be for County Tyrone. Of course. So, so that's where I want to see even more cooperation happen. Would be areas like that, which are of immense benefit um, to both counties. <coughs> and so, the university point, yeah, absolutely. The infrastructure point, but there's also other areas that we could be, we could be pursuing. You know, let's let's remember the, the scandal that happened around the radiotherapy unit at Alp Well, the radiotherapy unit was jointly funded um, by governments on both sides of the border and that was something that was pursued by Fianna Fáil just before we left office in 2011 so I think there's more scope there in terms of in terms of health in terms of even greater emergency service provision which at the moment um, has cross-border elements to it mm-hmm. um, but I think that it, it's going to come about when both parties are in government on both sides of the border and that's why I am keen to see um, Fianna Fáil return to government although um, in the right way as opposed to the way that's currently been mooted. Okay, Andrew, um, thank you for all your um, honest and in-depth answers so far. We're an hour and 15 minutes into this podcast, so um, if you have got maybe another five, ten minutes, we'll maybe just um, wrap things up. A um, couple of quick questions. Should have asked this one to you at the start, but I forgot. Tell our listeners what does the National Policy Director for OGRA Fianna Fáil do? So, in terms of my role within OGRA, um, I sit on 
Central Office Report of OGRA and our role collectively is to provide leadership um, for the entire movement across the island of Ireland. Um, there's about 12, as you said, on it. My role is, as I mentioned earlier on, is one of the Arcordia positions. Um, so it's one of the kind of five um, key positions at the top of the COB. Um, and as a national policy director, I'm responsible for formulating the policies um, which we will advocate for, um, which we will try to um, get adopted as overall party policy. And um, OGRA have been quite successful over the last number of years in getting that done. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier on the addition of student housing to rent pressure zones, and that was uh, initially uh, an OGRA policy which we pushed for and was introduced by Darrell O'Brien uh, as a bill in the doyle. So that's what my duty at the moment is. Um, you'll be interested to know I'm currently working on a third level education policy, and there's a significant aspect of that. Uh, dedicated to the current university provision situation in Derry and Donegal. Okay. So that's ultimately what my role um, is about. How many members do O'Griff Fianna Fáil have in the north, Andrew? So, moment we are growing our numbers um, consistently. I think that our numbers currently stand um, around 40, and that's just in the members that we know about in the six counties. There may be more who are joint members um, of the SBLP and Fianna Fáil, um, who we don't know about yet. Um, but that's something which our northern organiser is working incredibly hard on, and it's really positive to see the growth um, in Ogre and the six counties, and there's a significant amount of the COB's time dedicated to that, and we're determined to see that continue. Um, our last podcast, um, which we mentioned um, a while ago there, was with Fina Gill. Um, Ogra um, and uh, Jude Perry. Do yourself and Jude, number one, know each other? And um, do you ever sit down and have a pint to discuss anything? I don't know Jude. Um, I know of him. Um, I've seen him um, quite a few times just um, on the podcast and uh, also on social media. Um, I would speak more often with um, another member, a QB, Connor McGardle. Um, ah, yes. Um, From Armagh, is that correct? No. Okay, the last kind of political question to you, Andrew, is this. Fianna Fáil are on record saying now is not the right time for a border poll. When will be the right time? I, I think it's very hard to put a date on that. You know, I don't want to be one of these people who you know, tries to kick it down the road in any way, Niall. I don't want to be seen to be doing that. But we also have to be very careful of what happens when we hold a border poll. You know, we've seen what happened when the Scottish independence referendum was held in, I think it was 2015, and they lost by a small percentage, but at the same stage, that gave Westminster the ammunition to turn around and say, you've had your border or your, your independence referendum, you're not getting another one. And I think we have to be absolutely confident that it's the right time, and that we have the right arguments to put forward, and that we have done the on-the-ground work and engagement to enable a border poll to happen. Um, 
look, at the end of the day, if, if, if the evidence is there to suggest that it's the right time in three years or four years, then fair enough. But personally, I, I see it being probably in the next, uh, certainly five years at the very least before it happens. But again, there's a danger in quantifying it. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen, but I think that the focus now has to be on getting that engagement and that on-the-ground work happening, that consultation and outreach to enable us to, in the not-too-distant future, put a date on it. Would you be supportive of the establishment of a citizens' assembly to uh, discuss, plan and prepare, prepare Andrew? Absolutely, and I think that that citizens' assembly has to happen throughout the country, um, throughout the 32 counties. And we've seen the success of citizens' assemblies in other more contentious um, yes. areas, you know, not to, not to get into the, the detail of this particular argument, but um, because I know it's, it still remains a very divisive one. Of course. With the Eighth Amendment, there was the introduction of a citizens' assembly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's a positive step to start with that, to get the flavour of what the country are thinking and what the issues are going to be before you then go to put the argument to the people in the forum. So, so can, can I, as a member of Shared Ireland Group, ask you that if the formation of a new government does happen uh, with equal partnership as you stated between Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and others um, if that does happen can I now ask you will you be putting pressure on your leader Michael Martin to establish a citizens assembly to discuss plan and prepare for the future uh, possibility of a border poll? No, it's to plan and prepare and discuss it, yeah. Yes, absolutely. No, I think that that's something which, which has to happen and has to happen in the not-too-distant future. And, you know, I'm sure you've read the framework document, which was released, and there is talk of the creation of a United Ireland um, section within the Department of the Taoiseach. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see that expanded upon. I would like to see more solid commitments in relation to that um, if a coalition does come about, because at the end of the day, probably won't get a second shot at this within our lifetime so we have to ensure that we get it right now and that we make the right decisions and um, give people an informed choice. Well I'll certainly be looking forward to holding a further podcast with you Andrew down the line in six months or a year's time to see um, has there been any movement on this. Andrew okay we're on the wind down here tell me this who inspires you? Sean Lamass, um, 
is probably one of the most um, admired people in Irish history, um, let alone within Fianna Fáil. Mm-hmm. And then looking outside, outside Ireland, um, I think certainly Nicola Sturgeon, somebody who would inspire me in terms okay. of how she would carry on. Um, you know, I could go on for, for hours. No, here. no, no, you've included three people there and uh, yeah, three good choices, absolutely. Tell me this, Andrew, what's required in your opinion to create a truly shared Ireland? Again, I wish we had more time here, but um, and we will speak again, hopefully. But briefly, how do we, as Irish nationalists, persuade and convince and reassure unionism to come with us and join this conversation? Well, I mean, I know that we're kind of tight for time, so I'll try and keep it as brief as I can, Niall. But yeah. the big thing that we have to have to do is we have to make sure that um, unionists don't feel that we are simply going to be flipping the problems of the past and we have to ensure that there's you know that there's engagement there particularly on cultural issues so mm-hmm. we have to make unionists aware that we see their Britishness as legitimate yes. and that we recognize them as British and that they will have you know the, the right to maintain that identity um, in any shared Ireland and of course that's going to require you know east-west discussions as well as north-south discussions mm-hmm, that's probably the big thing you've then got cultural aspects that come into it um, you know things like things like the 12th of July for example you know would it be a case that we could turn around and say that the 12th of July would become a bank holiday and uh, you know, throughout the 32 counties that's just one that comes into my head yeah yeah but, you know, that's the kind of you have to be going down mm-hmm. um and ultimately, I think it's one that you know, we could reach accommodations on in relation to the whole kind of the, the, the cultural outlook of Ireland. Because let's not forget that this, when, when this comes about, it's not going to be a case of, you know, as the DUP used to famously say, six on the 26 doesn't go. You know, it's not going to be a case of just banging six on to the 26 mm. and, you know, us changing the way we do things. You know, yeah. the changing, or sorry, the PSNA changing the Gerdy. You know, that's not going to be what happens. It's going to be a reinvention of Ireland and it's going to be the creation of a new shared Ireland and I think ultimately that's how we convince unionists and, you know, kinda kinda softer nationalists too. Let's not forget that, you know, that that's potentially going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. That's how we convince them to come along with. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and it's a conversation that I apologise for because I should have paid more attention to this particular question uh, throughout this podcast. But um, again, we'll have this conversation, hopefully, Andrew, in the future again. Okay, on a slightly more lighthearted note, Andrew, who would you choose to play yourself? Which actor in your life's movie, if it was to be made, and why? Well, that's a hard one. <laughs> Of course, that, that could be impossible, could it? Oh, here, listen, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually not too sure about that. I suppose in terms of my favourite um, favorite actor, I mean, my favourite actor at the moment in terms of big actors is, is undoubtedly Tom Hanks. Um, I suppose if I was to get myself to jump a wee bit more often, I would like to see Richard Madden playing me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, but, um, I'm not getting anywhere with uh, COVID-19. Yes, very good. Uh, tell me this, Andrew, the best piece of advice you've ever been given and what, what it was? The best piece of advice that I've ever been given, believe it or not, it came from a unionist politician. Okay. And I'm not going to name who it was, but he was, he was pretty prominent there about 10 years ago. And he turned to me and he said, regardless of what it is that you're looking to get, you don't get it by shouting. You don't get it by shouting at people. You don't get it by shouting about it. The, the way that you get what you're looking for is by wanting people around to your way of thinking. And that's something which I've tried to employ, not just in politics, but in, uh, across my, my, my life um, since, I, since I got that piece of advice. Well, I must say, um, I have never spoke to you prior to this conversation today, but you certainly put yourself across and your views in a very reasonable, articulated and human sort of um, uh, a way. So um, I, I think you definitely did um, learn that bit of advice and you are applying it to your life. So well done on that. Thank you, Neil. Um, Andrew, the best county in Ireland and why is it obviously going to be Derry? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if it hurts said it's any other county. Um, I think Derry is a beautiful county in the sense that there's so many different aspects of Derry. You know, of course you've got Derry City and you've got the history of Derry City, but then you go outside of Derry City and you, know, you head towards the north coast, you've got the railway line, like Michael Palin described it as one of the most beautiful journeys that uh-huh. you've ever taken in the world. You know, you've got Musselman Temple, you head down to the south of the county, you've got Seamus Heaney's homeland, and you've got the beautiful land that he wrote about in his poetry. Yeah. So there's so many different aspects of it. I suppose the next question comes then, if, if I don't say Derry, where's the most beautiful county in Ireland? Okay, so yeah. I think out of, the, out of all the counties I've been to, um, I think County Clare tops it for me. Right. Um, in terms of the beaches, in terms of the Cliffs of Moher, um, I think Clare's definitely up there for me. Okay, very good. Um, if you could only drink one of these moving forward, which one would you go for? Water or alcohol? Now that's a tough one because there you've got the, I mean... Be, being an ex-student and all. <laughs> uh, well, this is that exactly. You know, I'd say maybe back in my Holy Land days, I would have made a very different answer. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think now it would have to be water because let's face it, I'd get nothing done if I was drinking all the time. Yes, very good. If you could only eat one food every day for the rest of your life, Andrew, what would that food be and why? Yeah, that's a tough one now. I would say probably being a good dairy man, it would have to be the jam turnover. And it would have to be, it would have to be a dairy jam turnover. 
<laughs> okay, okay, very good. And finally, this is the last question, and we always ask the same question to all our guests. Um, if you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, and these three people can be alive or dead, who would they be, and again, why? Okay, so the first one that comes into my head, I would say, is Veronica Gearn. And I would love to meet Veronica Gearn. Unfortunately, of course, now we know that Veronica Gearn um, is no longer with us. And, and just, Andrew, put into context, again, for the benefit of our listeners that may not be familiar with Veronica, very briefly, if you can, just what, what, what she was and ultimately what happened to her. Mm-hmm. And back in the mid 1990s, she wrote extensively about the drug gangs that were, you know, unfolding the blight of heroin um, on the streets of Dublin and you know throughout the country. Yeah. And you know, were driving working class kids into and the crime and the uh, you know drug addiction and so on. And she tackled the drug gangs. She wrote about them in the paper. She went against the anti-label laws, which were there at the time, mm-hmm. um, which really did threaten independent journalism. And unfortunately, she was she was killed um, for getting too close to the issue and for um, naming some of the the key players behind it who ultimately then went to jail. Yeah. Um, but that bravery and that determination and what motivated her, you know, particularly as a family, a family person, um, and having a young family, um, what motivated her to put her life on the line mm-hmm. ultimately for the good of the country? Yeah, and and we have got some fantastic journalists in this country. And, and they do expose corruption and and um, I guess you know there there's a big debt of gratitude to these individual people um you know for shining a light on the ugly side of Ireland so Veronica would be your first guest and I find that very interesting one and that's the reason why I asked you to expand on it there just because um, it's the first uh, time someone has ever given me that name and I think it's it's a really good choice so your second one would be Andrew who? Second one I would say, and this is a more controversial one, and it may be less surprising given my um, my political heritage in that way, but um, my next one would be Charles Hockey. Okay. And okay. I would be very interested. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you put in it could be more controversial. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something. Um, I would be very interested to with Charles Hockey from the point of view that I think he's got a fascinating, or he had a fascinating life story. Um, you know, somebody who came very much from very working class background, not similar to my own, um, and regardless of any flaws that came about or um, you know any kind of any criticism that you can make, Charles Hawley, somebody who got himself to the to you know the highest office, barring the president, um, and arguably the most powerful office um, in the land. So I'd be interested to hear his life story and what he could contribute. And let's face it, if he was still alive, he'd probably bring the best wine to the dinner party too. So. Uh, <laughs> Very good. And your third and final uh, person to your fictional dinner party would be you, Andrew. Third one. Now, if there's anybody at all that I, mean, I can think of, of several people, but at the moment, I would love to invite Joe Biden. Oh, okay. And I would love to hear the plans that he has for the US and um, how he can bring the US up to the rest of the world's standards um, and how he plans to win this election and how he plans to defeat Trump. 
Very good, very good. That's a very, very, very good uh, dinner party and it's certainly one that I would love to um, be involved in. Very interesting choice there, Andrew. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, me too, sure now. Uh, oh, well, that's, that's very decent of you. <laughs> okay, well, um, I think that's us, Andrew, um, wrapped up. And I say we're an hour and 35 in here. I genuinely could speak to you for another few hours, but I don't imagine anyone would have the appetite to listen to you and I waffle on for another couple of hours. So um, it's on that note, Andrew um, McFadden, that I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, I want to also thank you for being open, honest and forthright in, in all the answers that you give. Um, and um, just before I go, uh, Shared Ireland team would like to just urge everyone to keep practicing our social distancing measures, listen to the guidelines coming from our uh, people that, that know and that as a community and as a country, we will get through this current crisis that we find ourselves in. Uh, hopefully we will come out of this stronger, um, have more empathy towards possibly the people that we wouldn't naturally agree with and a better understanding of the important things in life because sometimes, and I and others are obviously guilty of this, we get caught up in things that really, when we put it in perspective, really don't mean that much. Andrew, I'll just give you a little opportunity in case you want to finish off by saying anything yourself. there now just about how we have to refocus um, and how we have to do things better and that's something that I'm going to be able to make my contribution with and Ogra and Fianna Fáil will be doing that um, the how we do things better and how we refocus um, on what's actually important in life and ultimately how we keep the planet and society um, as safe and as healthy as we possibly can um, so look thank you for, for your time and thanks for having me on it's been a pleasure speaking to you now no problem. Thank you for that, Andrew. And um, finally, uh, just one last shout out to all our frontline staff who, without them looking after us in the way that they have always done, but I guess their importance in society has come into particular focus this past month or so. So a massive uh, congratulations and round of applause to every member, regardless of what frontline service they're on. So thank you very much for listening, folks, and we will speak to you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.